0: This morning I would like to put forward two principles that we find throughout Jesus' teachings. Now, this is going to sound a little provocative, uh, especially since I'm a big advocate of grace, but hear me out. Uh, The first principle is this, that the Christian should pursue honor and glory. Not the kind that comes from man, but the kind that comes from God. Secondly, and we'll see this in our text today... Glory and honor are attained by trusting in Christ's sacrifice and by following after his self-sacrifice. Let's make this tangible with an example. Uh, Consider King David, or shepherd boy David at this point, anointed as the next king of Israel. He's on the run from Saul, who sought to kill him. Uh, Now, David was honoring God by honoring God's anointed... and refusing to take revenge into his own hands. I mean, the guy had two chances to put an end to Saul... and he refused to do it. Instead, he continued to put his own life on the line. He sacrificed his own self-determination... his comfort, his mobility, his right to power... his right to rule Israel. He sacrificed his own safety, by leaving alive the man who had committed himself to killing David. And because he was seeking to honor God through his self-sacrifice, because he was submitting his own desires to God's will, which, by the way, we'll we'll define sacrifice that way. It's when we submit our own desires to God's will. Because he was doing that, God honored David. David. Of course, David's greatest failures happened when he did the opposite, didn't they? When he chose to give in to his own desires at the expense of God's will and honoring God. Well, we'll keep this principle in mind as we turn to John 12 and hear from the one and only sacrifice capable of reconciling all of us here to God the Father. So turn with me to John 12 and pick up with me in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, "'Sir, we wish to see Jesus.' Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, "'The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified.' If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Let's pray to our Father right now as we go to his word. Heavenly Father, we exalt your holy and precious name. We are here to ascribe glory and honor and power, everything that is due to you. Jesus, we thank you for sending us your word. We thank you that you revealed yourself as a man, that you came to earth, you lived alongside of us, and you died for us. We thank you for giving us this word so that we can know you, so that we can love you, so that we can know what it is you desire for us to do with the short time that we have. We praise your holy and precious name. Lord Jesus, I ask that as I preach your word, you would grant me the power of your spirit to proclaim it truthfully to your glory and to our edification. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, our first point this morning, if you're following along in your outline, is Christ's principle presented. Some good alliteration. Uh, So Jesus gets a question from some outsiders. Uh, He's in Jerusalem. If you recall last week we saw the triumphal entry as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and these large crowds had come out to meet him waving palm branches. Well, it's likely the same day and Jesus is in Jerusalem and a group of Greeks come desiring to see Jesus. They want to have a word with Jesus, a discussion. Well, who were these people? Uh, These would have been not necessarily ethnically Greek people, uh, but people from the Greek-speaking world. They were Gentiles. They were not ethnically Jewish. And yet... They were people who saw something beautiful and true in the Jewish religion, and so they came for the purpose of worshiping God through the Passover festival that was about to take place. Now we want to ask, what is it that these people represent in this story? Jesus is coming to a particular hour for which uh, his entire purpose is coming, and here we see that the Gentiles... Those from outside of the people of God are eager and desiring to know and follow God. Let's consider what Paul said about this phenomenon in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. He writes to Christians in Ephesus, and he says, Remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He says, Remember that you were at that time, this is before the cross, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And he goes on to tell how the cross changed that. But the point is that these are people who are outside of the covenant people of God. The gospel has not yet gone forth to the whole world. And so they're coming to Jesus seeking an audience. Now, if you've been following along in John, you know that Jesus says and does some pretty surprising things, and so it is, at least for me here, it seems Jesus is not all that concerned with meeting these Gentiles. It strikes us odd unless we think about it for a moment. Why, why is that? Well, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah for the Jewish people. He came to earth to minister to Jews. And with very few exceptions, that was his focus perhaps you remember the syrophoenician woman in mark chapter 7 she came to jesus because her daughter was afflicted with a demon and jesus looked at this gentile woman and he said it's not right to take the bread from the children israel and give it to the dogs gentiles he says let the children be fed first and we're like whoa that's wildly offensive what is he saying but then she not offended recognizes the truthfulness of what he says and demonstrates greater faith than all those in Israel. And she says, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the children's table. And Jesus is astounded by her great faith, and he heals her daughter. But the point is, Jesus, his priority of his mission was to the Jews. The Gentiles come later. Later. Uh, There's a reason he was not ministering in the greatest city of his day. There's a reason he's not ministering in Rome at this time. Where is he? He's in Judea, and Galilee, where the Jews were. But Paul the Jew uh, also understood the Jewish priority. And he was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. But if you read Acts, and you consider his missionary journeys into Gentile lands, whenever he came to a place, where would he always go first? The synagogue. ...and he would preach the gospel to the Jews. And after that, he would go to the Gentiles. And even in his greatest epistle, Romans... ...he can write this of the gospel in Romans chapter 1. We have a slide for this. It says this, "...for I am not ashamed of the gospel." This is the good news, folks. The gospel is the power of God... ...for salvation to everyone who believes... ...Jew and Gentile. But there's a priority... To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So there is a Jewish priority to the mission of Christ on earth. And so Jesus is choosing not to engage. But as we'll see as the passage goes on, that's going to change really, really soon. As Jesus will point out in verse 32, if you look down at it, he says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. Not just Jews. And so Jesus, he responds to Philip and Andrew, he says, the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Seems like a non-sequitur, but Jesus knows what he's doing. So the question here is, how is the Son of Man glorified? And Son of Man was one of Jesus' favorite ways of referring to himself. Jesus is glorified not by seeking his own glory, but by seeking the glory of the Father, by submitting his own desires to the Father's will, and by offering himself as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. If you recall last week when we considered Philippians chapter 2, it says that it was because of Jesus' sacrificial obedience to God that God bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that he is lord now so far in this gospel jesus has been, has been saying this thing over and over my hour has not yet come the hour of his glorification but now roughly 5 days before his crucifixion that changes and jesus here says this my hour has come Look at verse 24 with me, because here Jesus is going to help us understand his purpose for this hour. He gives us an illustration of his purpose. He says, consider a seed or a kernel of wheat. He says, unless it falls into the ground and dies, that kernel will stay a kernel indefinitely. Right? You can leave a pumpkin seed on your windowsill as we've done, and it will stay like that. But if you accidentally throw some pumpkin seeds into your compost pile, then you might be surprised next year, as we were, and find a pumpkin vine amid your kale. (laughs) Sorry for getting off track. Right? So he says, but if the seed falls into the dirt, it loses its seedness, and then it bears fruit. So that's the illustration. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I am the seed. My purpose is to come and die, because if I come and die, then I bear much fruit. Good news to the Gentiles. Sin had the world in darkness and Jesus came and paid the penalty for sinners like us because it is through his blood that many across the world can be reconciled to God the Father. His death would dispel the darkness of Satan's reign over the nations. And so with regard to the Gentiles coming to Jesus, he's saying this, I'm five days away from the cross. If you want to benefit, you'll have to wait because I have an overarching priority for this hour and it's to go to the cross so in verses 23 to 24 Jesus has made his claim that fruitfulness for his ministry is accomplished through his own self-sacrifice the seed has to die but also that glorification is accomplished through his own self-sacrifice that's the principle here Fruitfulness and glory for Jesus were attained through the cross. It's a wonderful truth, Pastor. Well, Jesus turns to you in verse 25 and 26. And there he says the same principle is at play in your life. In a similar but not exact way. Now, I want to say that right now I'm speaking to disciples of Jesus Christ. If that doesn't describe you... ...we're so thrilled that you're here this morning... ...but this doesn't really apply to you yet. Now, Christians, we want to be really careful... ...when we talk about this principle of self-sacrifice. Your self-sacrifice is not how you become right with God. Right? So our sin is an infinite reproach to a holy God. We are incapable of paying that debt on our own. That's why Jesus' sacrifice was so necessary. That's why grace is so important. Unearned favor from our Father. Jesus' death and resurrection alone are the only things that can make you right with God. Just think about that, how much Christ loved you to sacrifice for you. And so when we turn and we talk about our own self-sacrifice, we want to be really careful. We're not capable of sacrificing ourselves like Christ did. You could die as a martyr, and you wouldn't accomplish what Christ did. Because not one of us here, including myself, are capable of dying as a spotless, sinless sacrifice, substituting for other people. Only Christ could. And he doesn't need us to do what he has already done. Hebrews calls his sacrifice a once-for-all-time sacrifice. It can't be repeated. It doesn't need to be. So then, what is our sacrifice? Self-sacrifice. I still haven't gotten to it. Are you on the edge of your seat yet? What is it, Pastor? Our self-sacrifice... is not how we make ourselves right with God. Our self-sacrifice is how we respond... to the grace of God... that we have received in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. What we do is always built upon what he has done. What we do is always a response to what he has done. His work is most important. But here's the cool thing, brothers and sisters. He has chosen to work through weak and broken vessels like us to accomplish his ongoing work of redemption in this world. Right? Here's a, a good example of it. Jesus died on the cross and made it possible for us to be redeemed. But the book of Acts tells a story of how he commissioned apostles to go out and preach the gospel, to go out and make disciples. And so the Great Commission is still our responsibility today. But if we want to be fruitfully used by God, this is what Jesus is saying here. It's going to come at a cost. The kernel dies to be fruitful. This is why Jesus applies it to us in verse 25. He says, the one who loves his life loses it. There's nothing more miserable than living for yourself. Just try it for a while. And he says, the one who hates his life in this world preserves it for eternity. Now, you English majors are about to get excited because Jesus here is using hyperbole. Or extreme exaggeration to make a point. When he says you have to hate your life, he's not talking like your teenager when you ground them. Oh, I hate my life. (laughs) Jesus is after the heart. Where is your heart set? Is it on this life? Or is it on the life to come? Jesus says the one whose heart is set on eternity is so committed to that, it looks like he hates his own life in this world. She's so sold out for Christ, it looks like she has little regard for this life. On the other hand, he's saying you should be concerned if it looks like your life, your heart is set on this life. The YOLO lifestyle does not befit the Christian. For those of you over 50, YOLO stands for you only live once, and it's typically accompanied uh, by an exhortation to hedonism, to maximizing pleasure for the moment. We deny... (laughs) You're welcome, Mark. You can Google it later. We deny its message and its implication. Jesus says if we live for this life and this world, then we lose our lives. But faith, brothers and sisters, faith is the ultimate exercise in delayed gratification. If I believe that I possess eternal life and perfect glory and harmony and peace and joy with God, then the obvious implication is that I'm happy to give away this short life for His glory. But if I'm living as if this life is all I get, YOLO, that calls my faith into question. So, how do we respond to the grace that we've received in Jesus Christ? Well, we can't die to save others. But consider Paul in Romans 12. He says, in light of the gospel, do this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We can't die for others, but we're called to give our lives for others as living sacrifices. This is why Jesus says, if you want to serve me, you've got to follow me, and you'll be with me in thick and thin. But here the promise at the end of verse 26, what does it say here? He says, if someone serves me, the Father will honor him. So this brings our principle into full focus. If you trust in what Jesus has done for you, and you desire to honor him by following him, by giving him your life, Jesus says it's going to cost you in this life. But just as God honored Christ for his sacrifice, Jesus is saying, God will honor you for whatever self-sacrifice you engage in in this life. Now, again, I just want to affirm I'm a big grace justification by faith guy. Sometimes we can get uncomfortable talking about rewards because it feels like that's works-righteousness. But it's not. If you understand that justification is by grace alone, you don't have to shy away from the idea that God wants to reward you for your self-sacrifice. Jesus said as much. Consider what he said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. He says this. He says, Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says... Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's saying over and over, Where is your heart? He wants it to be set on eternity. But you see, this is impossible apart from faith. Unless you really believe that He died for your sins unless you really believe that he rose again and one day he will give life to your mortal bodies. And that when you stand before God on judgment day, you will not stand in fear because you'll have been clothed in the righteousness of Christ that you received through faith, but you will stand before God on judgment day because your heavenly Father wants to reward you for the way that you offered yourself as a living sacrifice in this life. I don't know about you, but that's pretty cool to me. God wants to honor those who love to honor him. Well, Let's continue looking as we see the principle demonstrated. Pick up with me in verse 27. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that Jesus had thundered. Sorry. And heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. I want you to imagine Christ in this moment, five days out from the crucifixion. He's demonstrating for us how to pursue self-sacrifice when it comes at a great cost. Truth be told, every day of our lives, we are presented with little opportunities to glorify God in small ways that can add up over time. Opportunities to say no to the flesh. Opportunities, perhaps even, to say no to something good. Also, we can say yes to God. So consider Jesus in verse 27. Christ, like you, is fully human. He is faced with the hour of his own sacrifice, the humiliation and disgrace before men, the weight of God's wrath against sin that we committed. And so when Jesus says, My soul is troubled, it's kind of like the understatement of the year. No one has ever suffered like Christ because it wasn't just physical pain, but anguish of soul, which is why he says, My soul is troubled. We're told that in the Garden of Gethsemane he was in such agony that he sweat drops of blood and he prayed, if there's any way to let this cup pass, let's do it, but not my will, thy will be done. And in John's Gospel it's no different. Jesus feels the tension between his flesh, his desire to preserve his own life, and his purpose for coming in the first place, which was to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so he says, what shall I say? Save me from this hour? And in his moment of temptation, he speaks the truth to himself. It was for this purpose that I came to this hour. My entire life has been leading up to this point. And as he faces the opportunity to honor God through his sacrifice, he shows us how to go about it. Jesus isn't presenting himself as this hapless, helpless victim. His concern overall is for the glory of God the Father. He says, Father, glorify your name. Father, glorify yourself in what I am about to do. And in response to his prayer, God uh, speaks from heaven and he says, I have glorified it. This refers to Jesus' earthly ministry. He says, I will glorify it. And this refers to Jesus' lifting up on the cross and his ascension. Now, those with him on that day didn't understand what was going on, and truth be told, if I heard a voice from heaven, I would probably find a way to rationalize it as a fighter jet or something going by. And so Jesus looks to them, and he says, this was not for my sake, this voice was for your sake. And he goes on to say that my sacrifice is going to accomplish three things. And we'll find these three things... ...in verse... ...30. One. He says, first... ...my sacrifice represents the judgment of this world. There's a little bit of double meaning here. Uh, because the world is judging Christ... ...right? So, they have judged Christ to be worthy of death... ...and upon his resurrection... ...those who continue to refuse Christ... ...have judged him as a fraud... But on the other hand, God is also judging the world. Because he's showing the penalty for sin. What it takes to redeem sinners to himself, it takes the death of an innocent son of God, son of man. Secondly, he says the ruler of this world will be cast out. You see, the cross initially looked like Satan's victory. The death of the Messiah. Unbeknownst to him, however, it was actually his defeat... Before Christ, the nations were lost in darkness under the ruler of this world. But look again at Ephesians chapter 2. We have a slide here. And consider Paul writing to Gentiles, describing them before they came to Christ. He says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul there is describing what it's like to live under the spiritual tyranny of Satan. He kept the nations in the dark. They were trapped in darkness. One of the wonderful themes of Advent is light. Isaiah 9, those walking in darkness have seen a great light. Jesus says, my death on the cross means this. Satan's power has been broken. We still await his final defeat, but the kingdom of God is advancing, and we can be part of that, and Satan cannot stop it. He cannot keep the nations in spiritual darkness any longer. The cross put an end to his tyranny. And So the third thing the cross accomplishes is based on the second thing. If Satan had his tail whooped on the cross, Jesus says that when I ascend... I will draw all these people to myself. All the people who were trapped in darkness. Jesus is saying, we saw this happen, and upon his ascension, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation begin to trust in Jesus as the gospel continued to go forward, and as it continues to go forward, and as we take part in that proclamation. Well, Jesus could face his own sacrifice knowing this, that first and foremost it would honor God, but also that it would defeat Satan and reconcile his beloved creation back to God the Father. It was a sacrifice for a purpose. Well, as we come to our last point today, we're going to talk about how we are to respond to Christ's principle. Pick up with me in verse 34. Believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. So here, at the very end of Jesus' public ministry, his audience still isn't getting it. There's still some expectation of a different kind of king. There's still an expectation of a conquering Messiah. No one was expecting a suffering Messiah. One who would win by losing one who would conquer sin and Satan by sacrificing himself. And so they continue to press Jesus with questions. They say, we know from the law... and sometimes that word law just refers to the whole Old Testament... as it does here. They say, we know that the Christ or the Messiah... it's the same thing... will remain forever. How can you say... ...that the Son of Man has to be lifted up. And by the way, who is this Son of Man anyway? Now Jesus, to his credit, has been answering questions like this his entire ministry. But Jesus recognizes something that will become readily apparent... ...in the next paragraph that we'll come to next week. Some people will never have enough questions answered. They will never see enough evidence... They will never be convinced enough to accept his offer of grace and believe in him. The answer, of course, to their question is that Jesus and the Son of Man are the same person. And he is lifted up on a cross and dies, but upon his resurrection he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he does rule his kingdom, where he remains forever. But instead of retreading the same ground again, Jesus turns to the crowd and gets after the real issue. Not having all of your questions answered. But unbelief. Jesus really did die on the cross and rise again from the grave. But unless you trust in him for that, it does you no good. So Jesus pleads with them. And if you're not in Christ this morning, he's pleading with you. He says, the light is with you a short time longer. Now, when he said this, he meant his public ministry was coming to a close. He was about to be crucified. But he pleads with him one last time. He says, Believe in me. Your time for doing so is short, and you don't know when you've had your last shot. As long as you have the light, he says, Believe in the light that you might become sons of light. I belong to a New Hampshire hiking Facebook group, which is funny because I've never been hiking in New Hampshire. I'd like to. But people will post very niche hiking-related content. Uh, This week I saw one of these videos, and it was a video of a beautiful mountain hike. But the caption was, when I go hiking alone. And so this guy is going on this beautiful hike, but another person's voice is superimposed on the hike, asking questions. Look at this. Wow, this is beautiful. I wonder who made it. I wonder who made me. Uh, I wonder what he expects from me. Do I have a purpose in life? And the video made me laugh, because here I am going to explain the joke. Uh, Because obviously the guy's going out into nature to relax, to find peace. But it's the beauty of nature that actually haunts him ...with these deep foundational questions. Maybe you can relate to that video. You're walking through this trail of life. You recognize the inherent beauty of creation. You're convinced that there must be a God who made it. And you've experienced his good gifts in your life... ...in your family, in your job... ...and the things that you enjoy. And you know there must be some purpose out there for your existence but you're not sure what that is. You feel like you're hiking through life without a clear destination in mind. That's a really difficult place to be. Jesus says that because of sin, we all start out walking in darkness. And he says the obvious, that the one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. He also said approximately 20,000 times, I am the light of the world. His promise to you this morning, if you are hiking on this path and you'd like to know where you're going, he says if you trust in him, he will light your path. He will make your path and your purpose clear. Clear. He invites you to enter into the joy of his service, to know God, the one who made you, to know his love, to know his purpose for you, to glorify him in the way that you live and respond to his love and to be honored by him for that sacrifice. Jesus presents himself to you as your light. And by trusting in him, You find your purpose because he died on the cross not just to take away your sins, although that's a wonderful truth, but to save you from aimlessly wandering in darkness. He alone can give you peace and purpose for eternity. He alone can calm your restless heart. I'd like to turn to those here who are already trusting in Christ, and we'll close ...with an application of our text today. One of the challenges of preaching a text like this... ...is that I have to apply it to myself. The wonderful truth is that we have been given an opportunity by God... ...to participate in his ongoing work of redemption... ...the renewal of all things. But Jesus is telling us that if we want to be fruitful in that project if we want to be honored by God for that fruitfulness, it will invariably require sacrifice on our parts. There's no getting around that. It's why Jesus calls us to take up our cross, to die to self and live for God. Now, I want to be clear, we don't just sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice. We don't deny ourselves for the sake of self-denial. That was the mistake of the medieval church. You had all these monks running around making vows of poverty for no real reason. They could have worked. They were able-bodied men, but instead they just chose to sit around all day and beg, as if choosing to be poor by not working was somehow honoring to God. Other monks would wear these super itchy sweaters so that they were always uncomfortable. Again, I'm still trying to figure that one out. Others, like Martin Luther, before his conversion, would literally flagellate themselves with whips. And again, all of this accomplished nothing but making a lot of people poor, uncomfortable, and bleeding. As Christians, when we choose to deny ourselves, it's not for the sake of denying ourselves, but it serves a divine purpose, to glorify God and to be used by Him. Now, all of us are at different points of our spiritual pilgrimage through this life. My hope in giving you this application is that you can take one area of your life in which you are currently living for the world instead of God and take a step to change that. Just one step. So maybe for you this morning, your first step of self-denial is to recognize that Sunday is not your day. It's the Lord's day. It's resurrection day. I recognize that if we are thinking of Sunday in worldly terms, it's the weekend. We work all week so that on the weekend we can have me time. Church is nice, if I can make it, but today is a beautiful day and the golf course is calling, or my kids' sports, or my boat, or whatever it is that I enjoy. No, Sunday is the day that Christ has called us to gather together for worship. And we honor God, and we leave a witness to our community when we spend our time Sunday worshiping God and fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Maybe you listen online every week, but you've never taken the step of coming to church because it's an imposition on your time, or perhaps it intimidates you. What if you decided this week, I'm going to choose to be part... ...of a local church in person. I'm going to worship God... (coughs) ...and fellowship with His people. If you're listening online today... ...I want you to know we would love to see you... ...and meet you next Sunday. I'd like you to consider this morning... ...if there are certain idols... ...in your life... ...that keep you from sacrificing for Christ. Perhaps if you're honest... ...you love comfort. You love entertainment... And you fill every empty spot on your schedule with comfortable entertainment. What would it look like if you just took one night out of your week, or one night out of your month, and invited your unbelieving neighbor over for dinner, and invested in their lives, and loved on them, and prayed for an opportunity to love them with the gospel? Maybe you've identified opportunities at your job or in your social circles where you could be a witness for Christ, but you're afraid of what it might do to your reputation. You don't want to be seen as that religious nut that always talks about Jesus. Or perhaps you're worried that you'll be classified as anti-intellectual for being a man or a woman of faith. Maybe you spend your entire income on yourself. Maybe you spend more than you bring in on yourself. Maybe if you look at your monthly expenses, you find that your entertainment budget is four times as large as your giving budget. You can ask yourself this question. Does my monthly budget indicate that I'm living for this world or for the next? What would it look like for you to make financial sacrifices to advance the kingdom of God, to give to God through the church, To support missionaries or church planting or helping send young pastors to seminary or supporting crisis pregnancy centers to protect life. These are just ideas. What about your time? If you could budget your time, what would it reveal about your priorities? Let me lay on the guilt real thick. If Jesus was looking at your Google Calendar, what would it reveal about your priorities? Are you spending your time according to the doctrine of YOLO? Or are you giving your life away to Christ, confident that you have eternity to spare? What would it look like for you to take a step of faith here? Would you serve the church? Would you get up an hour early in the morning and pray for the church and for the community? Would you shovel snow for your elderly neighbors? Would you cook a meal and bring it to a sick person in church? Last one, I promise. As you think about your future plans, as you think five, ten, fifteen years down the road, the place I want to live, the kind of house I want to buy, the kind of job I want to work. Are you planning to do what you want to do most with clenched fists? Or are you praying as you plan with open hands? Lord, thy will be done. Even if that means you call me to do something that I don't want to do. Maybe he calls you overseas. Maybe he calls you to a church plant 20 minutes down the road or he tells you to stay put right where you are. On a cold day like today, you were hoping he was going to call you to Hawaii. Here's the reality. God has already given you more than you could ever give him when he gave you the precious blood of his son, Jesus. And God has promised that he loves to honor those who love to honor him. There is not a single drop of sweat that you give to the kingdom of God for the glory of God that he will not recognize and reward. He loves to recognize and reward in this life and in the next. Now I recognize I just spewed a lot of ideas at you. My goal is not that you go through and do all of those things. If you get nothing else from my sermon today, my hope is, is that you do this tonight when you go home you lay your head on your pillow tonight i'm asking you to pray this lord savior redeemer father would you show me one thing in my life one step i can take one sacrifice i can make for your glory Would you show me one thing I can sacrifice so that I can be more fruitful for you and for your kingdom? Make me more like Jesus. I'll warn you, that's a dangerous prayer. But it's a prayer that honors God. We'll close in prayer.